Hey guys, welcome to Because I Said So, the podcast where we discuss age and how it affects how we perceive ourselves, how we perceive others, and the conversations that we have because of it. Thank you for listening, and please leave a review to support the podcast. Thank you. We have a very special guest today. His name is Peyton. Peyton, do you want to introduce yourself? Uh, hello, I am Peyton Bowling. I'm uh, 23 years old and uh, I, I'm interesting enough to be on the podcast. <laughs> of course. And um, Peyton, you have a really, really interesting story and especially relating to um, a part of you in regards to your medical kind of history and how that's affected your life. So can you talk a little bit about your transplant experience and what age you were and kind of just the story that ties into that? Yes. So I, um, I was born completely normal, um, you know, five or 10 fingers, 10 toes. And, uh, you know, pretty easy first eight months of life. And then um, right around the eighth month, uh, my mom and dad noticed that I was acting different and and sickly. And there were certain things that just weren't going well. And so they took me to our local hospital uh, and they did you know, tests like they do when they said, we can't really find anything particularly wrong. Uh, At one point they thought I had um, strep throat, uh, rotavirus or one of those types of viruses. Mm. Um, Something very simple that you can fix, you know, with some antibiotics or rest. So they sent me home and uh, wasn't, really getting any better. So um, on the night of the Super Bowl in, gosh, 1998, uh, it's funny that I know it's that night. Um, (laughs) On that night, uh, my family, my uh, grandparents were over with my mom and dad and me uh, watching the Super Bowl. And from what my mom tells me, I was on the floor I cried out in a rather, you know, painful scream. Mm -hmm. I looked up at her, I raised my arms, and then I was gone. Uh, They didn't know what happened. Um, I was just gone on the floor, no breathing, no heart um, beat, nothing. They assumed I had choked or maybe a seizure. I mean, they were just kids. They didn't know. They were uh, 27 and 24 at the time. Wow. And so they didn't know. Yes, they were, they were well, relatively young. Mm-hmm. Um, and they had an eight-month-old. And I mean, like, you know, who knows what to do with an eight-month-old unless you've had them before. Uh, yeah. I, I was there first and only, um, but um, my dad took me, they, they called an ambulance and my dad took me to the back of the porch 
And because he thought I was choking, he decided to hit my back to, you know, dislodge what was ever in my throat that he thought was there. And somehow he hit me so hard that it restarted my heart. Um, <sighs> what happened was that we know now is that I had a massive heart attack, um, like the big one. Um, but the paramedics assumed that it was just the stress from having been in the hospital just a few days prior and possibly that I got choked on something, nothing, you know, big. And they didn't even say to call our doctor for it. I mean, who would think that a eight month old would have a heart attack? Um, so then four months later, uh, my mom is a teacher and she's at work and she gets a call from my babysitter and my babysitter says he won't stop crying and screaming and uh, everything. And so they went to her and uh, I was in pretty bad shape, just, you know, like think fussy baby, but to the point of thinking, you know, they're in the middle of dying or something like yeah. that. And they took me back to the hospital and they did, you know, test after test. And my mom, uh, previously, back when I had went, when I was eight months old, they had called in a specialist. Uh, um, uh, what are they called? Infectious disease specialist. <laughs> and because they thought that it could be a number of things. And uh, at one point, they had brought up the possibility of it being a little known disease called Kawasaki's disease. And the doctor said, no, that was, it was impossible. Um, the symptoms for that are uh, strawberry tongue, high fever, peeling of the fingers, um, like a diaper rash and Oh, extreme pain, which causes like screaming and yelling and like what I had. Um, the doctor said, uh, no, that can't be it. Um, and they showed her like the fingernail peelings or the finger peelings and all of that. And they said, no, it couldn't be it. So come to find out uh, when I was, you know, one in a month, a year and two months old uh, that I had had Kawasaki's disease and it had um, gotten into the heart and caused massive damage. Mm. My mom, uh, my mom refused to let me leave the hospital before they told her what was wrong. And they were about to discharge me and she said, you're wrong, there's something wrong here. Mm. And uh, my pediatrician happened to be there and she said, listen to his heart and, and just see. And, you know, the doctor's like, oh, it's this crazy mom. And she just wants to, you know, I'll humor her. And so he puts the stethoscope up to my chest and he, he's listening. And, and then his face starts to turn. And three minutes later, he, he comes back up. And my mom says, I was right all along, wasn't I? And he said, I hear a gallop. He's in heart failure. So, uh, heart's failing, um, that's not good. Um, 
So I was um, taken to Vanderbilt and they evaluated me for a heart transplant, which is when you take uh, a donor organ and transplant it to a new person who needs it. And I waited a year and two months mm. for uh, a donor heart. And at the time, the average wait time for my age and body shape was about four months. Wow, wow. Yeah, so I, I waited a while and uh, let's see. Shortly after that, um, when, they, when they took the heart out, they said that I was basically a hair widths close of uh, not being able to have the heart function anymore. It, when, a, when a heart is dead, it's white and really kind of like a chicken breast. Mm -hmm. and they let my mom see the heart and she said uh, that it was totally white and there was only one little hair strand of pink left. Wow. And yeah, and so we're good, right? We have the transplant and everything's, you know, great. We, we have to live with those transplant complications. But uh, two weeks after transplant, um, something went really wrong and it took them a while to figure it out, but from their best guess, and they can't be sure, but from their best guess, it was that my heart was not matched as well as it could have been, or that I had recurrent Kawasaki's disease. And so I went into a massive rejection. Um, my heart was somewhat failing yet again. And so they tried, they tried experimental drugs, experimental procedures, um, everything. And at one point they heard about doing um, this new therapy procedure called uh, plasma apheresis, where they take out the plasma from your blood and clean it really fast in this machine and then put it all back in and it's supposed to help clean out the toxins and the uh, anything that may be inside of the blood that's, you know, not good. And um, so I was pretty sickly at this point and they hooked me up to the machine and there is a doctor and his two nurses that are assisting him like to do this. And they hook it up and my heart like the heart monitor starts to do some funky things and they're like well that's weird and and I started to throw a couple of like PVCs and small uh just increasing in heart rate and they were like man okay well let's let's try this drug and so they tried a few drugs to kind of make the heart slow down a little bit and then one of the nurses said as a joke wouldn't it be funny if he went into VTAC, which is ventricular tachycardia, which is the last step before uh, death. And um, she said, wouldn't it be funny if he went into that? And then I went into that. Um, and uh, they had, tr they tried for 
I think two or three hours <clears throat> to uh, bring me back. Uh, I kept coming back and then going. And um, my parents said I had third degree burns on my chest from how many times they had used the paddles. Oh gosh. And at that time I threw a stroke that I didn't know about and we didn't find out until like three years ago. Um, so all of that happened. And because of that, I was in pretty bad, bad, bad shape. So they said, the only thing we have left is uh, ECMO. And so they put me on, um, it, it's the special kind of machine that basically does your living for you on the outside while you have yourself. And it's this machine that's larger than a regular hospital room almost. Wow. And um, I was on that for two weeks and they said, if this doesn't work, there's nothing else that we know to do. And it worked. So, uh, you know, I'm here and it, it wasn't, perfect there were a lot of complications afterwards but I got to live you know a normal life I all of that happened between the ages of uh eight months to two years old so uh, I got to live a relatively normal life I went to kindergarten had friends uh I couldn't remember my mom crying the first time that I got a birthday party invitation from a friend <laughs> and um I was so confused. I was like, isn't this a good thing to go to a birthday party? And she's <laughs> like, it's a great thing. It's so great. <laughs> and I was like, okay, don't cry. <laughs> um, and everything was pretty decent until around 2011. Uh, so I had received it in 99 and then Two thousand eleven, it started to <clears throat> when when you receive a heart transplant as a child, it, it grows with you. Well, e even as an adult, it, it grows with you. But uh, organ transplants are somewhat like a pretty long patchwork job. Um, they can last a long, long time. Uh, I think the longest a heart has gone is 32 years. Mm. Um, but mine was getting to that point of, we need to change it out again. Yeah. And yeah, and yeah. <laughs> um, they uh, evaluated me like seven times and I was just not there yet. So from 2011 to 2018, they just kept saying, we're almost there. We're, we're not yet though, we're almost there. <laughs> um, and uh, finally in 2018, they said, oh, we're definitely there. And then it kind of went like, uh, imagine your life as a steady line. And then like 2011, it kind of dipped a little. And then in 2018, it just sort of bottomed out. Wow, yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and I imagine they, I imagine that they, waiting phase too is like incredibly it just 
taxing mentally and not really knowing like when things are going to happen, not having this, like just this lack of control that you felt like you would kind of regain. And I'm sure your family felt like they'd kind of regain the sense of control and this little bit of peace, at least for this time. And then you're thrown back into this waiting game of just guessing and not knowing what's going to happen next. And it, yeah. Yeah. It's really funny though, that you mentioned that. Um, I've always felt uh, in my life that I've kind of always been in that waiting period uh, with like everything. Cause I don't know, you know, when you're a kid, you sort of feel like you're waiting for adulthood. Mm -hmm. And then I don't really know what you wait for when you're adult, when you're an adult, because I honestly don't feel like an adult. <laughs> um, yeah. But um, I always sort of felt like I was, you know, waiting for that adulthood for transplant. And the weird thing was for those eight years, I wasn't even on the list to um, get one. I, I was mm -hmm. just waiting to get onto the list to wait. <laughs> um, and, uh, and the funny thing is like, you know, they, they said, you don't need it yet. But then in 2016, uh, I had to get stents and I had to continue to get stents. I had a coronary artery vasculopathy, which is this strange coronary artery disease that happens to transplants. That, like, you know, I eat well and exercise, but it still affected me because scar tissue builds up around the, um, well, in lots of places around the heart and makes it difficult for it to beat and pump blood efficiently. Uh, mm. Yeah, but at the time, uh, well, I guess sort of during that whole waiting game period, I had um, a few things to fall back on and fun. I had theater, I'm a musical theater kid and, um, what else did I have? <laughs> uh, man, I'm boring. <laughs> um, yeah, medically, I'm really interesting, but you know, life, eh? <laughs> all right. No, yeah, I mean, I think that so, that, yeah. that is, it's, it's so important, I think, to have a sense of community. And I'm like, I'm struck by, I think, how knowledgeable you are. I mean, of course, you've had to be, um, but also just like this level of self-awareness. When do you feel like that kind of started to happen that you were aware that maybe something was a little bit like different about your history or maybe what your future looks like? Because I know that you talked about being so young. It's like when you got that first invitation, like, why is she crying? When did you kind of maybe start to reckon with that and understand? Um, hmm. Yeah. That's a good question. I can think of a few moments where certain things became more clear. Um, when I was in kindergarten, my teacher accidentally let it slip that I, that, you know, an organ donor had to give me my heart. Um, I, oddly enough, I was okay with that. I, I, you know, it didn't like crash my world, mm. um, but I was five. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, what does crash a five-year-old's world? Um, I remember I went to school and, you know, everyone around me looked like me, was the same, felt the same. Everyone felt friendly, all that kind of stuff. But I remember 
when I would talk about certain things, like I would talk about my doctors or having to get blood draws or, or tests and procedures and stuff, that wouldn't exactly translate to them, mm-hmm. which I always found weird. And then I, I slowly figured out, oh, they don't have to do that. <laughs> and I guess it was very gradual sort of figuring out that I was pretty different from everyone else. Uh, but, you know, it really didn't hit until middle school, which is, you know, the greatest years of your life. Oh, of course, of course. Um, <laughs> oh, yes. Everyone just loves those middle school years. <laughs> and that's like, you know, everything hits you like, separately and then that hit me and it was like um oh no of course it's got to be this hopeless thing so um but but yeah it it was gradual and I, I sort of it's really weird but I didn't really have a choice it's either you accept it or well I guess there really isn't any other decision yeah you sort of accept it and and there are days when it's not the easiest thing to accept and I mean this pandemic has definitely been you know taxing I haven't seen anyone face to face other than doctors for it was it was last March wow wow yeah is that yeah is there like an extra level of precaution that you have to take in order um to keep yourself Mm -hmm. healthy in regards to all of that because i i know people that um we have in our family and things like that um lung transplant patients who have to you know take these anti-rejection drugs and immunosuppressants and so there's that heightened level of um awareness and care about all of these things and so how is that and especially that heightened level of isolation um been affecting you kind of funny um I remember when the pandemic first started and they were like everyone's going to have to quarantine and and social distance for pretty long time you know and I'm like I'm reading you know what to do and I'm like this looks like almost every other day for me Mm. um there wasn't much change from a regular flu season for me I have to um like when a flu season comes around I'm very isolated and very like right now flu season is right now right yeah yeah (laughs) and normally I would be pretty isolated and cut off from most of the world I would have a select few people like in my life and maybe go to a couple of more places but but not too much and if it was a really bad flu season, that would be a no. When I was in a physical school setting, uh, if there was a, uh, I remember at my school, in our little cubby holes, uh, we would get little sheets of paper that said, um, your child has possibly been exposed to, and then it was this like long list and they checked which one. And I was, I look back at that now and I'm kind of like, yeah, maybe you could have just called. Yeah. <laughs> um, feels so impersonal, but 
um, anytime I was like close to a, um, you know, an exposure, I would have to be pulled out for a little bit. And it worked because my mom was a teacher. Mm. My mom was my teacher. <laughs> um, yeah, which uh, she was harder on me than everyone else. And I was always so confused by that. But, you know, I, she didn't want to show favoritism. <laughs> um, I was always like, why are you being mean to me? <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, precautionary. Uh, there's a lot of I have to make sure that friends and family, if I'm going to an event with anyone, you know, have you been exposed to flu, strep, mono, uh, I guess now COVID, Um, although I haven't been out, so. Um, I have to do that. I have to, um, social distance and isolate. Uh, After my, my last transplant, I had to wear a mask and social distance for seven or eight months, probably. Mm. But, you know, a little different now because everyone's doing it. Um, so it's not, it's not all that hard. And when it's the only thing you know, it, yeah. it's not really too difficult. But that doesn't mean I don't have those moments of like, I want to be outside. I want to see people and things and do those places even exist anymore? Is there anything beyond the road out there? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I know, I know you talked about um, your teacher kind of like letting it slip, quote unquote. And I was kind of wondering, and especially being so much older and kind of um, being just a lot more aware of what was going on through your second transplant um, and having people, you know, having that very like, open thing of like I'm having a transplant you can't really hide that I think when you're so much older and people around you know what's going on was that something that you felt was really really vulnerable uh, I mean I'm sure that you've had to you know go through that process of people finding out and knowing and how does that feel when people know do you feel like they treat you differently or is that a concern that you have it's funny yes Yeah, I would say yes. Um, In my regular life, uh, I try very hard to not let anyone know. Mm -hmm. I I joined a theater company in 2014. Yeah. And I didn't tell any of them except for the director. um, So that, you know, in case something bad happened, they would know. and slowly, you know, I, I slowly started to sort of tell a select few people every so often. And there are moments when you kind of feel that, aw, and, and I, I, I don't always like the aw. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I just want people to see me as regular, normal, like them. Um, and I won't ever be fully like them, but I can get as close as I can. And one way I can get to that is by them not being like, oh, so, so yeah, it is, there is a sort of a, they do somewhat 
treat me differently, but, but also if I know them really well, they don't treat me any differently. Yeah. And I think that I imagine also kind of in that situation, it's like, that's how you know when they are really close to you is when like, they don't treat you any differently. And when they do just see you as another person and see you as their friend. And I think that that's kind of one of those important things about community. And I'm sure one of the hardest things about right now, not being able to see people. Um, And I was kind of also wondering, I mean, I'm, I'm struck by kind of how I feel like miraculous your story is and like, especially as it relates to like your childhood. Thanks. And I was, I was kind of wondering if you feel, I mean, not in like that sense of like still, still like being normal and things like that, but if you do feel like a heightened sense of like my life has a purpose and like, I really do have a special, um, like a special place and a special, I'm like, you have purpose being here. Well, I think everyone has purpose being here in, in, you know, maybe it's a good purpose, maybe it's a bad, maybe it's to teach something, maybe it's to be a lesson, a tool, whatever it may be. Um, I feel like I do have a purpose, I would say. Um, I don't know what it is. (laughs) Um, If you know, please tell me. Um, Yeah, I I suppose I would say I, I I do know that from everything that's happened, I've, my mom's always said this, and honestly, a few adults in my life have said this, that they say I'm so wise and um, wise beyond my years, which really just means that I kind of know what's going on. (laughs) Um, And, uh, I think that's kind of come from everything. And I remember, you know, in middle school, like I said, the best years of your life, um, my friends weren't exactly um, the smartest of people all the time. Uh, And, you know, like an example, hey, how about we, how about we pull that door off its hinges? Wouldn't that be funny? And, you know, even back then I was sort of like, I don't see a point to that. And that's just a small example, but I feel like I try at least, or have at least a little bit more of a, a wisdom of maybe this isn't the right thing to do. Maybe this isn't the right thing to say. Maybe it's not the right thing to think, you, you know, just mm-hmm. trying to be more understanding of those around me and what their feelings may be. Yeah, I think just just from talking to you, I can tell that you have that like heightened sense of empathy and I think just awareness and thoughtfulness, um, of course. And it's, I think, like you said, I think that some of that is I'm sure just innate to you, but I think a lot of it also comes from that experience of, you know, really taking in and absorbing a lot of things and you didn't have that, kind of like naivety I think that a lot of kids grow up with you were kind of spared of that um in some ways but I mean also just yeah like your own experiences and having having awareness about how things affect people I think I think it's really beautiful and I mean you were talking about you don't know what your purpose is I think that in you I can see a lot of purpose and just from what you're telling me and I'm so excited for people to hear this and learn a lot more about that (laughs) 
And I think kind of in closing, what do you kind of like wish people knew if you could tell them one thing? I mean, obviously this isn't the only thing that defines you, but I think that if you could kind of tell them one thing, I mean, even as just relating to the way that we talk to other people and the way that we affect other people. um, And you can take as much time as you need to think about that. And that's a very hard hitting question. Yeah. Um, People, uh, well, actually a better way to put it is uh, you, as in, you know, you and I and everyone in the world, uh, each person is obviously a person. Wow, I'm getting deep here. Um, (laughs) And they each have their own thoughts, feelings, um, nuances, differences. Um, I, I feel that we should all sort of understand those, take time to just look and understand them as as best as we can and not not judge someone before we can at least understand them better Mm. and to be kind just be kind yeah I mean I mean so applicable always and especially right now I think with to be cliche with everything that we see going on in media and news and just everything. (laughs) I think that that's, it's so applicable and you are such a beautiful person that I can already tell just embodies that. And I just want to say, yeah, of course. I just want to say thank you so so much for being on today. And I really, really appreciate this. And I am so excited for people to hear and to learn and to just experience your purpose and all of its wonder. Well, thank you. It was a pleasure being on. Thank you for asking me. Yeah, of course. And thank you so much, everybody, for listening. Please remember to like, subscribe, and share. Thank you.